Let me take you on a journey to the coldest place on earth and its last and greatest wilderness, on a voyage to Antarctica. Hello and welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica, brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. I'm your host, Alok Jha. As a continent of research and science, Antarctica gives us an insight into the history and future of our planet. But the research happening there is also revealing the secrets of our universe. So this week, we're going to Antarctica and far beyond with space plasma physicist Dr. Susie Imber. Susie is an associate professor in space physics at the University of Leicester. She's currently involved in the Beppe Colombo mission to Mercury, which launched in 2018 and will go into orbit around Mercury in December 2025. She's also a high-altitude mountaineer. Since 2014, she's teamed up with highly acclaimed mountaineer Maximo Kausch, first to discover and then to climb dozens of the most remote mountains on the planet. So you're someone who researches uh, planetary sciences and planets out there, whether it's Mars or beyond. What's your interest in Antarctica? I have lots of interest in Antarctica, actually. Um, My primary research in Antarctica is that um, we're interested, I'm interested in how the sun interacts with the planet's magnetic field, the Earth's magnetic field. And that drives huge dynamics around the Earth um, that can be quite harmful. My area of research is called space weather and big space weather events can cause damage to GPS systems and power grids and astronauts to get high doses of radiation and damage to telecommunication systems. Um, and it also drives the aurora, which is the sort of wonderful light show that we see at high latitudes. We often call this the aurora borealis or the northern lights. Um, and we see them over northern Norway and Canada, those kind of regions. But there's also an aurora in the south as well called the aurora australis. Uh, and the Antarctic continent is the perfect place to observe the aurora australis. And by looking at the aurora, where it is, how intense it is and how it moves, we can understand the coupling between the sun and the solar wind and the Earth's magnetic field. So that's my interest. And, you know, in terms of uh, how long this kind of work has been going on in Antarctica, sort of space science, uh, what's the sort of connection between the, the space science and Antarctica in terms of my area of research, it's been going on for decades, actually. Um, and we have lots of equipment down there. So we have cameras, all sky cameras that look up uh, and and are measuring the aurora from different locations. But we also have a huge radar system down there um, built uh, at the British Antarctic Survey base. Um, and so we've got loads of equipment and, and that equipment's been there for a long time. The, the, one of the problems that we face is that the location where the radar is is on a particularly unstable portion of of the ice shelf. And when it starts to break up and we think we see cracks in the ice, we quickly have to drag the radar to a different place, um, to a place of safety and set it up again. And it's massive. So... um, yeah, we, we have these issues associated with our equipment. Now, but being in Antarctica, getting to Antarctica, working in Antarctica is not at all an easy uh, thing to do. Um, but I'm guessing that the reason you do it is because the conditions there uh, are particularly good. You talked about how um, you can see the southern lights, the aurora australis. But is, is there something about the conditions there in Antarctica in terms of the sky or the positioning of the, uh, on the Earth that allows you to do your work particularly well? Yes. Yeah, so for my work, you need to be at um, 
high latitudes in the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere. And if you want to go south to look at the differences between the Aurora Borealis and the Aurora Australis or the Northern and Southern Lights, then you have to be on land. And the only continent we have is Antarctica. So it's exactly its position um, relative to the South Magnetic Pole that's important. But for many of the other aspects of scientific research that are going on, Antarctica is ideal for a range of different reasons. So, for example, um, if you're interested in positioning telescopes in Antarctica, you might do that because it's a region of dark skies, it's a very transparent atmosphere, in some regions there's very low wind conditions, so it's ideal for uh, observing space at just a fraction of the cost of actually going to space with your telescope. Um, another example is uh, Ice Cube, which is a neutrino detector, and that's buried deep underground uh, under the Antarctic surface in the ice. And it's designed to detect neutrinos. And these neutrinos come from supernovae and other explosive events in the universe. And neutrinos are really hard to measure. They mostly just pass through the planet and they don't interact with anything. Um, but the way this instrument works is that the neutrino collides with a nucleus of an atom in the ice and it gives off a little bit of light. And we see that light. So you need this sort of a large area, huge volume um, of totally dark space that's also transparent uh, and the ice underneath Antarctica is the perfect place for it. So there's a huge range of research going on down there. With, with the neutrino experiments, I'm guessing also that um, one of the reasons it's good to be in Antarctica is that you have fewer um, bits of noise around. So, you know, you don't have uh, potential random signals for, from you know, human-induced activity or buildings or lorries or anything else that might sort of swamp any tiny signal that is a real neutrino. Yeah, you're right. So you need complete darkness um, because you're looking for tiny, tiny flashes of light uh, in the ice. And so, yeah, being deep underground, these these experiments, they're always underground. Sometimes they're underground um, in, in huge mines underground, for example, in Italy and other, and other places too. So, yeah, they have to be underground. So, so tell us some of the, um, the the big insights that have come from looking at space from Antarctica. What kinds of things have we discovered uh, because because of these these really complicated experiments in very faraway places? Well, actually, um, kind of to extend this a bit more than just looking at space, I wanted to bring up something that that actually was in the news just a few days ago um, to do with a new discovery in Antarctica, and it's not to do with space; it's to do with Earth. Um, so. Uh, they reported just a few days ago that they that uh, the British Antarctic Survey drilled through a, a thick ice shelf about 900 meters, dropped a camera down, and they were looking for kind of mud on the seabed, and they found a boulder with um, sponges growing there and a load of unidentified creatures. Um, and these things are completely isolated in darkness and temperatures of uh, minus two degrees. And they suspect some of them might be thousands of years old. They've never seen some of these species before. So basically everywhere we look, we see exciting discoveries in Antarctica. Um, in terms of the research that I do, we have made huge steps forward over the last decade or two, combining the ground-based signatures that we get with our radars and looking at the aurora from the ground with spacecraft measurements. So we've got some, some spacecraft going around the Earth measuring the in-situ conditions um, up in the ionosphere, which is sort of above the atmosphere. And then we compare this with our ground-based observations. And that has enabled us to really understand the response of the Earth's magnetic field to the solar wind, um, this sort of space weather um, area of research. Actually, you, you talked about this earlier, but I wonder if you could expand a bit. So your your, your research area uh, touches on space weather. Well, what, when you say space weather, just describe for us what you mean. 
So what I mean, I mean, we call ourselves space weather forecasters. It's a bit like sort of, you know, terrestrial weather forecasters. We're looking at the sun all the time and we are looking for large eruptive events on the solar surface. So sometimes there are regions of the solar surface that kind of explode outwards and we get magnetic fields and a huge amounts of plasma that leaves the sun and enters the solar wind and travels all the way through the heliosphere to the outer planets. And I'm interested in what happens when that one of these explosions hits a planet and what the impacts might be. Um, and so we see the beautiful and bright aurora, but that's really just the um, a way that we can sense the extreme dynamics going on in the global system. Uh, and, and the biggest space weather event that we ever observed was um, in the 1850s, and it was called the Carrington event. And back then, uh, the only re reason they knew it was happening was that um, telegraph operators got electric shocks in their ears. <laughs> and so they knew something was going on. Um, but actually, what was happening was this huge coupling between the solar wind and the planetary magnetic field, the Earth's magnetic field, was driving massive currents above the atmosphere that induced currents to flow in anything long and metallic on the Earth's surface. For example, the wires that the telegraph operators were using. And if that happened today, of course, we'd get currents flowing in our power lines, for example, along oil pipelines, um, and we could see extreme damage to satellites, etc. So space weather has really serious impacts for our society because we're so dependent upon technology today. And in fact, more and more of our lives are coupled with um, sending up satellites and using satellite data. And the more we become dependent on satellites, the more space weather matters to us. So while it might have been just an inconvenience back in the Carrington event time, so these these electrical electrical electric shocks for telegraph operators, um, it, it, today it it would it would sort of make economies stop for at least a certain amount of time, given how much we rely on electricity and 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 electronics. Absolutely, and one of the massive challenges for us is that these things are very very difficult to predict. Um, as I said, the last massive event happened 100, over 150 years ago, uh, but smaller scale events happen fairly frequently. And really, it's difficult for us to, to predict when they're going to happen. Um, so what we do is we look at the sun, we sort of have this eagle eye view on the sun all the time, looking for these kind of events, measuring what the sun's doing to try to see whether the sun is becoming more active, for example, that might be indicative of a big event. Um, and then when one does happen, we track it through the solar system to see whether it's going to hit the Earth. Another uh, piece of, I suppose, I suppose you call this planetary science research, is where is is the appearance of meteorites on Antarctica. I mean, most of the meteorites we know of on Earth um, that we use to study the, the, the rocks from the rest of the solar system, um, they, they're found on Antarctica. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's not because for some reason they all land in Antarctica, as opposed yeah, to yeah. I was going to say, how come they all end up there? Is it just <laughs> yeah. the, is, it, is that where the entry point is? <laughs> No, 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 there's a funnel that, that goes down there. No, in fact, it's because um, they're easier to see in Antarctica. So as they land, they're, they're dark in color often, um, and the Antarctic surface is white, and so they stand out very easily. Um, also, there's sort of no vegetation in which they can be lost. So really, it's a question of identification. And um, one of the interesting things, though, about meteorites is that... Um, we seem to see slightly different meteorites in Antarctica than the rest of the planet. So about 5% of all meteorites contain iron. 
Um, but only half a percent of the ones found in Antarctica contain iron. And so the suspicion is that the ones that do, as they as they land, um, they get preferentially heated by the sun and they just sort of sink through the ice. And so they're, they're much harder for us to pick up. So in a way, the fact that they're landing on ice is sort of preferentially enabling us to observe or pick up certain types of meteorite over other types in Antarctica. Um, and, and the reason that we care about meteorites and the reason that we're looking for meteorites is that they're remnants from the early solar system, so when the planets were forming, um, and they can really tell us about the history of planetary formation in our solar system. And so by looking at these meteorites, um, we get a sense of sense of the, the, where, we, where the, our planet and others came from, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Um, t- tell us about working in Antarctica itself. Um, I just wonder, you know, we, we've heard from so many people uh, on this podcast that, that about how ethereal and strange and kind of magical a place it is to work but i just wonder um for uh, and a lot of those people are also working on antarctica itself looking at um you know how that continent is changing because of things like climate change looking at the wildlife around there looking at those sorts of things um for space scientists is there a what, what is the sort of I don't know, is, is there a kind of um, similar connection to the continent in, in terms of the work you're doing? Or is it just another place that's just a little bit harder to get to? Most space scientists, including me, have never never get the chance to go to Antarctica. So I haven't been to Antarctica yet, um, although... Uh, it must I'm, be on your list of things to do, surely. Yeah, it's absolutely on my list of things to do, yes. <laughs> absolutely. So most of us never get to go there because unless you're building the instrumentation or maintaining it, there are actually thousands of people using the data but you don't need those people to go down uh, to Antarctica to collect the data. Um, so, m- you know, most people never get the chance. There are ways that you can go and get involved. Um, for example, we talked about meteorites. You can join um, organizations that are hunting for meteorites. So um, various research organizations send people down to Antarctica every year hunting for meteorites. So that's kind of a great way for scientists to get involved in, um, in an Antarctica and get to go and visit. In part of the work that you're doing, again, we're looking at um, understanding the character of different planets um, um, and and understanding the otherworldliness of them. I mean, for us here, for the rest of us, Antarctica itself is probably the most otherworldly place that there is. Um, what can we learn from Antarctica uh, that, that helps people like you to understand what situation the conditions might be like on other planets? Well, Antarctica does provide a unique environment that we can use um, in many different ways in our research. So, for example, um, there are some dry valleys uh, in Antarctica. where These are regions that aren't covered in ice. Um, and these are ideal sites uh, for Martian analogs. So they're places where we might send um, Martian rovers or other equipment designed to operate on the Martian surface to test uh, whether they'll be effective. Um, they, it, it suffers from extreme cold. Um, and it's a very dry environment, just like you might expect on Mars. So there are analog sites which are of interest. Um, also, of course, if you think about where we're looking at going in the future, we've got Europa Clipper going to one of Jupiter's moons, Europa. Um, another moon of great interest to us is Enceladus, one of Saturn's moons. And these are icy worlds. And we're going to be sending equipment to look for life beneath the surface of these icy moons. Uh, and the closest analogue that we have to that environment to test all manner of things, whether it's drilling through uh, thick ice or operating equipment in these kind of environments, is the Antarctic continent. And so it, it really does provide analogues that are going to help us with our future exploration. 
And so it's a way of testing out equipment before you send it hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of, uh, of kilometers away uh, to other planets. Um, you, you know, you mentioned the icy moons of uh, Jupiter and Saturn, and I can't help uh, but just indulge my interest in this a little bit more, if you don't mind. Uh, so um, th- th- these are very, very far away from the sun, obviously, but they have liquid water on them. And liquid water is something that um, we think must be well, well, it's very important for life on Earth, so we assume it's important for life elsewhere. Is that what we're looking for, going to these places, Enceladus and Europa? Are we, are we genuinely looking for microbes or, or something else? Yeah, so we have, sent, um, we have sent probes out to these regions in the past, um, and we know that they have liquid water because there's a magnetic signature associated with the liquid water that we've been able to observe. So we know that they have liquid water deep, deep under the surface, and we suspect that the ice is incredibly thick. Um, so what we're thinking about is um, sending Europa Clipper to kind of characterize the environment, but in the future, perhaps sending something that could land and drill through the ice because we want to sample the water underneath. Now, some of these icy moons have large cracks in the ice and plumes of material coming out of the cracks. And we've also sampled some of those plumes And as we've looked at the plumes, we've been able to identify some compounds in the material that are also given off uh, at the earth. And so by by processes that enable life. And so we're sort of looking not necessarily to see the microbes, but maybe to see sort of some hints of conditions that that might enable microbes to, to exist. And if you think about where life started on the earth, we look at these sort of deep sea, deep ocean vents at the bottom of the sea, they never see the light of the sun. The environment is incredibly hostile down there, and yet life flourishes. And so that's the reason why we suspect that life may also flourish deep under the surface of, of these icy moons. Um, one thing I will say about the water, though, is it's not the kind of water that we see on the Earth. Uh, it, it's, it, it contains a lot of impurities, and so and we also want to kind of sample the water and, and find out a bit more about its pH and about the impurities in the water to also assess what kind of life might be able to survive there. Which is all incredibly exciting. Um, uh, the idea of looking for life beyond Earth is is something that I think is going to be uh, increasingly interesting and, and reported on in, in, in the coming years. Uh, but there's another reason I think that, that Antarctica is interesting for that front, because um, for the last 20 or so years, 30 years, we've been discovering even more extreme organisms in different places. So you mentioned the hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean where where organisms can live at crazy temperatures um, and they still seem to survive. But Antarctica itself has shown us that we there are, there are all sorts of organisms that can live in uh, uh, very, very extreme conditions there, which again give us the hope that they might exist elsewhere or other extreme conditions on other planets or other moons or anything. Um, I'm, I'm just more curious how how that has impacted the places we, we sort of send probes or look for life or look for signs of life elsewhere. It certainly has. So the only, the only thing that can help us in our search is looking at the most diverse forms of life on the earth uh, and then trying to find out if there could be parallel environments in other places. Uh, and so Antarctica clearly is a prime example of this. There are bacteria and other small organisms surviving in the most unlikely places in Antarctica, whether that's in pockets of water cut off um, from, from the rest of the world for, for, for thousands of years. 
Um, or as you say, under the ice completely, under high pressure um, environments. So yeah, looking for life elsewhere, we really have to look at what we can see on the earth first and then try to understand how life can survive here. Of course, we are assuming that life elsewhere in our solar system has evolved along similar lines to the earth when we make these assumptions uh, and you have to start somewhere. So, and this is where we start, but of course that's an assumption that may, may be disproven. The, the exciting thing about all of that, I think, is that as much as you might try and define life on earth and it's various multi multifaceted forms um, and you think, well, these are the conditions it must exist in. As soon as you find more extreme conditions, life somehow finds a way of existing there too, uh, whether it's incredibly salty or, or there's not much water or there's not even any sunlight. Um, it, they, they exist everywhere, which gives me optimism, at least anyway, as, a, as, an, as an amateur. It gives me the optimism to think perhaps life finds a way of surviving in all sorts of other places elsewhere as well. I mean, we've even found examples of... Um, of organisms that can survive space. So we've sent things into space uh, and brought them back again and they've they've survived that journey. So, yeah, well, absolutely. That's terrifying. Uh, yeah, terrifying. That's... What is this thing? What is this yeah, thing that can yeah. survive in space? These, uh, well, there's this things called nematode worms, for example. Um, uh, there's actually a few examples of organisms. What, what worries us at the moment, in fact, is... Um, is planetary protection. So when we're thinking about sending something to another planet, this applies to Antarctica as well, interestingly, but as you, particularly if we're sending equipment to Mars, we're really worried about decontaminating that equipment so that when we, uh, when our equipment arrives at Mars, we don't populate it with a load of um, organisms that have come from the Earth. So we have to be really, really careful. And now with the recent arrival of Perseverance, uh, and Perseverance is designed to cache samples that we be brought back to the Earth again. One of the real hot topics in our community is what will we do with those samples when they return to the Earth? Because we don't want um, the opposite to be true. Will we contaminate our own environment with samples that have come from Mars? Um, and the same certainly is true for Antarctica. We don't want to contaminate the Antarctic continent um, with with anything from you know other regions of the Earth's surface. So uh, planetary protection is an essential part of what we do. Hello, I'm Camilla Nichols, CEO of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We work to preserve and protect Antarctica's unique heritage, from the historic huts of early pioneers to the amazing discoveries in climate science. And our mission is to inspire current and future generations to discover, value and protect this precious wilderness. The pandemic has had a significant impact on our work, and we need your generosity now more than ever. Find out how you can help save Antarctica, protect our planet, and even adopt a penguin at ukaht.org. Or search for the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Well, what kind of work are you going to be doing with um, projects in Antarctica in, in the coming years? What, what excites you the most? There's a couple of things, actually, that I'm excited about. Um, one is this project I'm involved with called Home We Bound, which is an international leadership program designed to bring together um, women who are scientists and policymakers who really care about um, climate change and our environment. Um, the idea is to make a network of people who, combined and together, will be able to lead the fight against climate change. And uh, the culmination, it's a leadership training program in essence, but the culmination is, is a voyage to Antarctica as a group. 
And that voyage was supposed to happen in November. Sadly, of course, with the coronavirus pandemic, it uh, wasn't possible for us all to go to Antarctica. But we have high hopes that we will be going in 2022. So I'm excited about that because that's my first opportunity uh, to go to Antarctica. Can I just ask, have you, have you always wanted, I mean, of course, right now, we, we've talked about this, you do want to go to Antarctica, but I'm just curious where your interest in that continent came from. Did, have you always wanted to go or has it come from the fact that this is where you can do the best research of the kind that you want to do? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I've always wanted to go. I I used to read the sort of stories of the ancients, uh, of the uh, Antarctica explorers of 100 years ago, and that they really inspired me. And so I always wanted to go to Antarctica. Um, but I've never yet found a way to get down there. And in fact, I spend a lot of my time in the high mountains um, do, doing mountaineering and launching mountaineering expeditions to climb unclimbed mountains. Uh, and there are lots of unclimbed mountains in Antarctica, actually. So I have a real dream to go down there with a mountaineering expedition one day. And spend you don't have any uh, small ambitions, I tell you. That, that, <laughs> yeah. other, other planets, climbing mountains in Antarctica. Anything else? Uh, <laughs> 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 no, but and, and, so, and then that's part of the, that expedition. But are there other projects you're working on to, 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 in terms of the research going on down there, the research that, that perhaps also can inform the work you're doing? Yes. So as I mentioned, um, one of our, well, our, our radar in Antarctica, uh, sadly, the piece of ice that it was on sort of looks in a very fragile state. And so we're looking to relocate that radar system uh, into a more stable area, which, which will enable it to operate far into the future. So we have plans around that uh, to start with. We sort of quite urgent work that needs to be done. Um, we also have lots of plans associated with uh, the auroral science that we do. Um, and as I said, we are always launching new spacecraft um, that we can then use in conjunction with our ground-based assets to, to try to understand space weather. So this is a real focus of, of my research. Um, and uh, although it probably won't take me to Antarctica to necessarily do any of the science, of course, Antarctica is uh, inherently a part of what I do. Antarctica is the focus of this podcast and, and this conversation. But I'm also curious to know about your um your sort of attempts to go to very difficult places i mean you want to go to antarctica it sounds like it's going to happen would you i mean what about going to space or things like that i mean if antarctica's one challenge and space is surely next for you well yeah so um i i always really dreamt of going to antarctica rather than growing up dreaming of being an astronaut um but i sort of had some experiences in this regard a few years ago when i was part of a BBC television series called Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes, which is like a reality television series um, where sort of space meets uh, reality TV. Space meets the Bake Off, basically, is how it felt. Space meets the Bake Off, fantastic. <laughs> there was no baking, unfortunately, but it was kind of all about, you know, we, we had a group of people and we had um, a, an astronaut doing the selection and we were put through astronaut selection to try to see kind of what's, attributes are required for an astronaut and sort of who had the skills to be an astronaut one day. And so that really made me think about maybe uh, applying to be an astronaut one day. I mean, the European Space Agency have just opened their applications for astronauts, and I'm sure there'll be many thousands of applications uh, for people wanting to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, something that I would love to do, but we'll have to see what opportunities arise in the future. What do you think your chances are? Well, statistically, uh, there will be probably fifteen to 20,000 applications and they'll pick around 25. <laughs> so not great. Somewhere between one in a thousand and one in 2,000, I guess, are my, are, are my uh, 
is, is the likelihood of me getting there. Um, but having said that, there are a number of qualifications that um, will probably automatically rule out some of the people who apply in the first round. So um, I should have all the qualifications that they require. It's just a case of really whether I'm the kind of person they're looking for. Well, I'm incredibly excited for you. I think that the idea of uh, going into space would be something that definitely I would dream about. But I'm far too old and unqualified for that sort of thing anyway. <laughs> now, now, I think part of my reasons for becoming a journalist was because that way I could ring up NASA and say, hey, do you mind if I go on one of those uh, astronaut training programs just for, five, just for a day to write about <laughs> it? That was, my, that was the closest I was ever going to get, unfortunately. Um, although having said that now... Uh, the, there are lots of private space companies that will take people up. I mean, Virgin Galactic and others. So even if even if one doesn't become an official astronaut, there are potential for the, the, the people to go into space in the next 10 years. I mean, do you, th- that must be exciting too. Well, absolutely, but it's very different. So if you think about Virgin Galactic, their model is that uh, you go up in a, in a plane and the plane has a rocket attached to it. The rocket detaches from the plane. It flies in a big arc and it comes back down again and you're weightless for about six minutes as the rocket sort of completes its, its huge arc. So you get to see the Earth from space. You get to experience a microgravity environment sort of floating around inside the capsule. And then this thing comes back and lands at, at the spaceport. Uh, and so um, that's not quite the same as going to the International Space Station to do science experiments for six months. It's just a different kind of experience. Um, although, actually, for you, there's uh, SpaceX are looking to send uh, a, a capsule around the moon and back. Um, I think the I think the program is called Moonshot, um, and uh, I know that they the person who has bought all the seats on the first flight is looking for um, things like artists, uh, journalists like you, um, people who write music and uh, writers to go on that journey because what he recognized is that actually, well, what he said was, what if John Lennon had been to space? You know, how different would, would it have been? You know, think about the reach of some of these people, some of these artists and, and, and writers, et cetera, poets, they have a huge reach and sending someone like that into space has a much bigger impact for the entire population of the planet rather than sending someone like me into space. He'll do some great science, but you know, it may not reach as many people. So there's uh- hope for you yet. I, I think I think you're doing I think that's that you're doing yourself a disservice. It's probably much more useful for humanity in general if scientists go into space than <laughs> someone some, uh, someone like me. But I tell you what, if you do if you do hear uh, about the SpaceX seats, then and uh, and uh, you want to put a good word in for me, I will, I'm not going to complain. So <laughs> yeah, feel, feel free. But I think it's very interesting we're talking about going into space because for the um, explorers that inspired you that went to Antarctica, Ammons and Scott you know, uh, Shackleton, um, Mawson, these people who went to Antarctica for the first time, got to the South Pole for the first time, endured all these terrible things that inspire the rest of us to sort of do uh, do amazing things in our lives. For them, the, going to Antarctica was the equivalent of going to space is for us now. I mean, that, that's how unknown it was and that's how difficult it was and that's how challenging physically it was. So, you know, the, the, these things are not unconnected. No, absolutely. And, and actually the best book, possibly the best book I've ever read in my entire life, and one that I recommend everybody to read if you haven't read it already, is a book called The Worst Journey in the World. Um, it's by Apsichero Gerard, and it, it is just an extraordinary story of survival and overcoming adversity in Antarctica. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, and the courage that the people that were on the team displayed 
And their good humour in the face of extreme adversity is just remarkable. And I think stories like that really remind us what humanity is capable of. And I find it incredibly inspiring. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. And that, that book, of course, we've discussed on this podcast before as well. Uh, and absolutely, Cherry Gerard is a, is a, is a hero of that, of that time. I'm just glad that it happened to someone else. Uh, that, that, <laughs> you know, it's good to read about those things, but you don't want them to happen to you <laughs> necessarily. Um, can I just uh, finish up by asking you uh, a question which we're asking everybody? Why does Antarctica matter to you? Antarctica really matters to me as in a much broader sense than just science or, or, or interesting and incredible stories of history. It actually matters to me, as I'm sure it does to many of your other guests, as an example of international collaboration in an increasingly fractured world. Um, and uh, I think what the Antarctic Treaty and, and subsequent treaties over the years have done is protect this incredibly fragile environment for the betterment of, of everybody uh, and they've done an incredible job. And in my line of work and in my thoughts is what's going to happen to to space in this in this context? You know, we have all manner of issues around uh, around space and they're very similar issues to the issues of the early Antarctic continent. Thinking about um, the fact that the Antarctic Treaty set aside Antarctica as a place of peace and scientific exploration. And that really sets what I would like to see um, as, as the future of space exploration, but there is no sort of similar treaty yet. So I think it's really a milestone for what we can achieve when we work together um, for the betterment of science and, and all humanity. Susie, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. A Voyage to Antarctica is brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Next time, I'll be talking to Dwayne Fields, the first Black Briton to walk more than 400 miles to the magnetic North Pole in The White Continent, a special two-part episode. To find out more about our guests, including photos and videos, head to our website at www.ukaht.org or follow our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Trust's Antarctica Insight programme, supported by the Arts Council England, the Garfield Western Foundation and the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Jha, and produced by Jessica Norman. Ben Hewis is digital producer and the music and sound design is by Alec Hughes. See you next week.